1: Well, if you were here last week, you heard Dustin give a rousing, lift him up, hands in the air, inspiring, pump it up message of let it out, shout it out, worship and adoration of God Almighty. It was fantastic. It was thrilling. Made you want to get up and shout. Got this place rocking. <laughs> well, maybe not rocking, but… Uh, It definitely inspired us, and as good as it was, I'm going to say right here that it was not fair. You see, Dustin and I had discussed in the weeks previous what we were going to cover during the weeks when Pastor Rob was recuperating from his surgery, and we thought a mini-series on the Psalms uh, might be timely messages, because we don't preach much from the Psalms, And even though Jesus cited them really often, so we figured if it's good enough for our Savior, it's definitely good enough for us. So we prayed about which psalms to present. And I chose Psalm 51, which is David's crushing lament of his sin and his pleas for mercy. And Dustin chose Psalm 100, which is a veritable rock concert of positivity and love and praise, gushes with fun and shouting and singing. And here's why it wasn't fair, because shortly after we chose, Dustin quickly said, okay, I go first. (laughs) How am I supposed to follow that? I mean, he literally gave a message that led him to let out a loud woo during the sermon. How in the world do I follow a woo? I don't know. I mean, He took a psalm about joy and gladness, singing, faithfulness, love, thanksgiving, praise, blessing, and goodness. Those are all words in Psalm 100. And I'm left with a psalm about judgment, sin, a broken spirit blood guiltiness, sacrifice, transgression, iniquity, evil, and broken bones. Yes, these are all words in Psalm 51. Thanks a lot, Dustin. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, now, what if I tell you that Psalm 51 is even more joyous than the woo psalm? Yeah, that actually it gives us even more hope. Uh, It leads us to praise God even more deeply. What if I tell you it actually brings more of the joy and gladness that we found in Psalm 100 that Dustin preached on? What if I tell you that by the time we're done, you should be walking on air by the time we finish the message of Psalm 51? And why should you be walking on air? Because God is telling us of the greatest gift we can receive, which is restoration. To be completely accurate, the greatest gift God gives to us is himself. We have a home with him forever. And he doesn't have to do that, but he does. And he does it because he has given us the gift of restoration. To be restored. He restores us from our natural state of rebellion. He restores us from our natural state of sin. He restores us from our natural inclination to think that we know better than God how we should be and act and what we should do. Psalm 51 is a confession, but the goal of this confession is not self-abuse Or self hatred or hating on ourselves. It's about showing God's presence and God's faithfulness and how God alone renews the joy and the gladness that faithful Christians have in God's presence. It's about God restoring to us the joy of His salvation. Why should you be walking on air by the time you hear the message of the psalm? Because you're a sinner. And because I'm a sinner. David was a sinner. Bad sin. a Hideous sin. Helpless, sinister sin. And yet God looked upon him, and he looks upon us if we call him Lord, and he declared him righteous before God's throne. God says he put away David's sin. I mean, it's like God basically said, I know you're awful, I know you sin, you're sinful, but I have more mercy than you can ever imagine and I know you have truly repented and I choose to bestow my mercy upon you and restore you to me. So Dustin may shout from the rooftop that God is good and we are his and we should make that joyful noise for sure. But I tell you that this goodness worth shouting for is knowing that a righteous, holy, pure, spotless, and infinite creator of all that is seen and unseen has deemed you to be worth cleaning up and presenting to himself as spotless and one of his children. That's worth a hallelujah. That's worth a woo! So let's see how Psalm 51 uncovers that place of unbridled joy. A joy, by the way, that the world knows nothing of. This is a joy reserved only for those who trust in Christ for their salvation. First, I want to set the scene, because Psalm 51 has a title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So most of us are familiar with uh, what happened with David and Bathsheba. Uh, we're told in the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament about his major fall from heights. David, the powerful and up until then the honorable king of Israel, lusted after Bathsheba, a married woman. He forced her to have sex with him. He, he basically raped her and she became pregnant. Problem. Big problem for David. Big sin. Adultery. And he followed that with another. He sent for Bathsheba's husband, a soldier named Uriah, to come home from the battlefield. David wanted Uriah to be with his wife so people would think the baby was his. However, Uriah was more honorable than David at that point. He couldn't fathom having a little vacation time at home while his fellow soldiers were still out in the battlefield. So he slept outside. He did not go in with his wife problem, big problem for David, big sin now it's lying trying to cover his tracks basically but still at this point the dastardly act that he committed still pointed back to him so David followed that with another and this was a doozy when Uriah went back to battle David sent, a com- sent orders to a commander to have his men pull back at just the right time and leave David up front during a battle and not tell Uriah to pull back. So Uriah was left out front, he was vulnerable, and he was killed in battle. And this was a setup by David. Problem. Big problem. For David, big sin, murder. So we have adultery, lying, conspiracy, and murder not a good stretch for old David and in one of the Bible's biggest understatements it says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord I would say so but it's not until God sends his prophet Nathan to David that David really indicates remorse Nathan tells a parable that convicts David of his sin David finally admits fault and repents for what he did i have sinned against the lord david said nathan answers that with a profound word the lord has all the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die think about that the lord has put away your sin you shall not die So now let's go to Psalm 51, written by David to convey how he felt and thought about God's mercy on his soul, and follow along on the screen as I read out loud, starting in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Dear Father and God Almighty, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. How great is your word, made flesh in Christ and written to bring us into your presence. Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, your word penetrates to the deepest parts of our being. Thank you for leaving it for us. May we this morning have open minds and open hearts to receive your word and the truths within. I pray that the words delivered here this morning are not mine, but yours and yours only. All honor and praise to you. Amen. So, how vast is God's mercy? How cleansing is His restoration? It's really too enormous for human language, if you think about it, because God's capacity to forgive is unlimited. He never runs short of the ability nor the desire. To forgive you and me from all the wretched things that we say and do and think. It is unlimited. It's as far as the east is from the west, he says. The restoration is so sweet because we know how easily and often we, sh- we fall short of pleasing God. How many times we grieve him. How many times we disappoint him. How many times we flat out break his law and his commands. And this is really where David is after Nathan's visit. Look at verse 1, where the first thing he does is appeal to God's mercy. He appeals to God not on the basis of any good that he brings to God. In fact, David doesn't hand over his resume showing all of his accomplishments that he did for Israel, and try to build the case that his good deeds outweigh his bad, uh-uh. he appeals to God on the basis of God's goodness. Look at what he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, David cries, and according to your abundant mercy. Three times he cries to God on the basis of God's goodness, not his own. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, and he knew the Old Testament scriptures. We read it earlier. He grabs hold of God's promise in Exodus 34, in verses 6 and 7, which says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by but who will by no means clear the guilty. This mysterious work of forgiveness, redemption, and restoration, David knew it from God's promise. So he continues in verses 2 and 3, really to lay himself prostrate before God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What a raw admission that is. My sin is ever before me. It speaks of the perverse nature of sin. While we know God offers unimaginable forgiveness and cleansing, it doesn't take away the fact that it happened in the first place. And we can't rewind time and erase what happened. David can't undo what he did To Bathsheba and Uriah, but God does offer to remove the penalty and the power of sin, just not its presence, as Pastor Rob has taught us well over the years. The presence of sin is ever before us. Now, who is sin against? Do we sin against people? David's sin, it harmed people, but it was sin against God and his law. All sin is sin against God's holy and just law. And David recognized this. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Again, this is his confession, his lament to God. And now comes the recognition by David that God's standard is right. His standard is just and his standard is perfect. The rest of verse 4. That you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, God was perfectly within his rights to condemn David as a lawbreaker and to mete out his consequences. The consequences of breaking his law, which we know, according to Romans 6.23, is death. The wages of sin is death. Ah, But the unparalleled promise of the remainder of that verse of Romans 6.23 brings us home to sweet, sweet rest. Because it says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like we just take a deep breath. Say, ah. Now, did David know Christ? He wrote Psalm 51 some 900 years before Christ's birth. So how would David know of the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And why should God put away David's sin? He raped and murdered. And a baby later died as a consequence of David's ugly act. So how is this just? How is this right? How does this make sense? God, a just judge. Well, let's return to the book of Romans in the New Testament to help us understand how Christ relates to the Psalms and to the Old Testament in general. We're going to go to Romans chapter 3. In fact, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. We're going to read verses 25 and 26. Starting in verse 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That's exactly what Second Samuel says God did. He passed over David's sin. Continuing on. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a good explanation from pastor and scholar John Piper on this. He says, The outrage that we feel when God s- seems to simply pass over David's sin would be good outrage if God were simply sweeping David's sin under the rug. He is not. God sees from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place. So that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work it unites David with Christ. And in God's all knowing mind David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as his righteousness and God justly passes over David's sin. I wanna read that again so we get that. David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness and God justly passes over David's sin. Continuing with Piper's explanation, the death of the Son of God is outrageous enough and the glory of God that it upholds is great enough that God is vindicated in passing over David's adultery and murder and lying. Now that is the objective reality of how David is forgiven for his sin and justified in the presence of God. But what Psalm 51 describes is what David felt and thought as he laid hold on God's mercy. Some might say that Christians after the death of Jesus do not pray and confess this way. They should not think and feel this way. I don't think that's right. This is still Piper's words. Jesus, once for all, by his life and death, purchased our forgiveness and provided our righteousness. We can add nothing to the purchase or the provision. We share in the forgiveness and the righteousness by faith alone, but in view of the holiness of God and the evil of sin it is fitting that we appropriate and apply what he bought for us by prayer and confession every day. That's well said. Now many read Psalm 51 and zero in on David's confession. And indeed, he is confessing to be a reprobate sinner in all of its ugliness. But the message is not to be focused on David, however repentant, he reveals himself to be unless confession and repentance is followed by forgiveness and by restoration it's a vain exercise in other words unless something or someone god we know this is god is willing to grant a pardon what good is it to truly repent Therefore, the message of Psalm 51 is not as much about confession as it is about God's goodness, even amid the faithful person's despair. It's the message of God's sovereignty to restore restore whom he restores and know that it is good. It is the message of God reaching down to us to do the work of restoration that we're unable to do. Sounds like a familiar message. It is. It's the message of the gospel. With humankind utterly unable to restore ourselves to God's standards, even his chosen people of Israel, God reaches down through his only begotten, Jesus, God the Son, to do the work of restoration we are unable to do. Jesus put away the sin of all who will come to him. And confess their sins and repent of them. And Jesus died on the cross to do this. Now David didn't have the gospel as we have it. He predated Jesus in the flesh. Yet he knew God's promises to deliver his people. And to be faithful to his promises. So David took hold of the future promise of Yahweh, the Lord. To bring a Messiah that would save people from their sin. David recognized sin for what it is it's hated by God I love what Charles Spurgeon says in response to David's psalm Spurgeon says when we deal seriously with our sin God will deal gently with us when we hate what the Lord hates he will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace that is beautiful and so true Returning to Psalm 51, the rest of the first section continues the theme of David's confession and his pleas for restoration. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now in verses 7 through 9. David moves into acknowledging God's promise of restoration and begging for it. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verses 10 through 12 are just a beautiful song that we have sung here many times. I don't know if you picked up on that. Verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In light of our sin... And knowing how severe it is, one could only sing this if we know God keeps his promises to forgive. And we do know that. Of course we know that. Now from here, David anticipates God's forgiveness. And he shows gratitude for what he knows is there for him. He anticipates that God will deliver him. And he offers the response that naturally flows from when we are pardoned from wrongdoing. When you're pardoned, your natural response is exactly what we read here. David says, he will teach transgressors your ways. He will sing aloud of your righteousness. And he will declare your praise. When we are pardoned, we want to tell everybody. We are so grateful that we can hardly keep it to ourselves. Now, in Psalm 51, an interesting section opens up here. David begins to contrast the true motives of the heart with the actions of the Old Testament Testament sacrificial system. So he's comparing from the heart versus base actions. He says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As John MacArthur notes, ritual without genuine repentance is useless. I like that. Ritual without genuine repentance is useless. But when the motive is pure, sacrifice is accepted. It's acceptable. Do you remember Abel and Cain? They both offered sacrifices to God. Abel's was accepted because his motive was pure. Cain's was not. That makes all the difference. God looks on the heart. We know that. And we see in the final verses of the psalm that this is true. This truth extends through the whole body of God's people. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I will finish with this. Um, How many times have you taken for granted a function or a part of your body? We don't think much about the wonderful opposable thumb until we don't have it or we can't use it or it's hurt. We don't think much about the tough, never-ending duty of full weight-bearing of our heels until we have to have surgery to remove a bone spur. Then we really appreciate Ask Pastor Rob how much he took for granted weight-bearing on our heels before a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. We don't appreciate our senses of touch or smell or sight really until we don't have full use of them. Well, likewise, we wouldn't know good unless bad. Joy unless heartache. Bliss unless suffering. Beauty unless ugliness. Sweet unless salty. Harmony unless discord. Fulfillment unless emptiness. Or victory unless struggle. We know joy comes from the challenge. I like the statement, standing on a dry riverbank is never so appreciated unless one has been rescued from drowning in the water. I like that. Augustine, in his great work, Confessions, put it this way, the greater the peril of the battle, the more the rejoicing of the triumph. So true. A team that wins a game in a blowout against an easy opponent is pretty ho-hum afterward. They were expecting to do that but let that team fall behind against a tough opponent and scrape and scratch and claw and come back and ultimately win, and that team is jumping for joy afterwards on the field or or on the court. Why? Because it's as if they were pardoned from their earlier poor play or poor performance or earlier mistakes. David's confession in Psalm 51 encapsulates this so well, I believe. He had everything— and yet he sunk to the depths of despair and depravity to fulfill his own desires. He was labeled in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And yet, nevertheless, he threw away his communion with God for a time to commit heinous sin after heinous sin. David was a rad dude, and then he was a bad dude. And it was only after having his eyes opened by Nathan to his depraved condition that David began to understand just how joyous God's endless mercy is. And I dare say that this is God's greatest gift, restoration, forgiveness, pardon, justification, cleansing, deliverance, Christ himself.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.